Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Steve Osden, Washington Editor, and Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. Last week was another busy week for biopharma. The IPO market continues to be extremely active, with three more companies making their NASDAQ debut. EMA has named its first new head in more than a decade, and one of the most prominent CROs in the world, Wuxi Nextcode, has announced that it's splitting itself up. It was also an active week in the race to develop countermeasures for COVID-19, where there are more than 600 therapies and vaccines in development, according to BioCentury's COVID-19 Resource Center. Perhaps the most closely watched therapy is remdesivir, and Gilead has just announced how it plans to price the drug. Steve, can you bring us up to speed here? Yeah, so Gilead set a price that was in the middle of what was expected. It was maybe like a Goldilocks price, you know, not too high, not too low. At least that's what they're hoping. It's going to be about $3,120 for a course of treatment in the U.S. for patients who have private insurance. It'll cost less for Medicare and Medicaid. And Gilead has done deals with generic manufacturers in developing countries to supply it at a much lower price. HHS announced that they've secured 500,000 treatment courses, which it says is 100% of Gilead's production for July and 90% of production for August and September. It's kind of continuing a trend toward, well, before I was going at vaccine nationalism, I guess this is countermeasures nationalism. The real question, I guess, is whether Gilead is going to have other sources to supply the rest of the world. If not, I think there's going to be quite a bit of concern. On the bigger picture, I think, you know, there's a lot of attention to remdesivir now, and it's getting that attention because it was the first drug to demonstrate efficacy against COVID-19. But my guess is that six months from now, medicine's going to have moved on. There's all these trials that you mentioned in your introduction, and there are other things that are going to come along that are going to be better than remdesivir. Remember, it doesn't provide a survival advantage. And like I said, I think six months from now, medicine will have moved on. And I think that Gilead has done itself and probably done the industry a big favor by not creating a controversy around the price of remdesivir, or at least not a huge controversy around it especially since, as I said, I think it's probably kind of a bridge to other therapies that are going to be more effective that are going to be coming along in the future. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, over the past years, we've seen just a furor over drug prices. And I'm hearing out of Washington that Senator Grassley is trying to revive his drug pricing bill. What should we look out for there, Steve? Well, so it's interesting, actually. So Grassley's not happy about the pricing of remdesivir. He put out a press release this morning and said that the pricing of remdesivir is the reminder of the need for drug price controls. And he's pushing really hard to get legislation that he and Senator Ron Wyden introduced last year that would create for the first time drug price controls or drug price measures in Medicare. The idea of the bill is that it would create a $3,100 out-of-pocket cap in Medicare Part D, and that that cap would be spread out over a year. So you basically take $3,100 and you divide that by however many months there are remaining in the year. And that would be the most that any Medicare patient would ever have to pay for prescription drugs that they pick up at the pharmacy counter. The bill had received kind of tepid endorsement from some Democrats in the past, but not a lot. And Wyden, in his press release this morning, is complaining and saying that Democrats have so-called walked away from the legislation and he's angry about it and trying to kind of shame them into coming back. It looks like the Democrats are taking the position that they don't want to give Republicans a win in an election year on an issue as important as drug pricing. And probably they're hoping that they're going to win the White House and the Senate in November. And if that happens, 
they'll be able to enact much tougher drug pricing legislation than what Grassley is proposing now. Interesting stuff. Yeah, I think in an election year, it's probably going to be tough to get any drug pricing legislation through. I'd like to dig into a subject that you've both been looking at pretty closely, and that's real-world data. While real-world data hasn't yet become the go-to tool for validating safety and efficacy of authorized therapies, we've seen several groups, such as the Reagan-Udall Foundation and Friends of Cancer Research, heading up initiatives to help guide FDA decisions. Steve, can you give us some insight into what Reagan-Udall is doing here that may help out FDA during the pandemic? So the Reagan-Udall Foundation for FDA and Friends of Cancer have created what they call evidence accelerators. The most recent one is the evidence accelerator for COVID-19 diagnostics. The goal is to create a capability for diagnostics that it's long overdue. It's to connect data on diagnostic and antibody tests, which the big labs like LabCorp and Quest have, with the outcomes data that healthcare systems have. So it will be possible to know for a large representative cohort which tests actually were predictive for COVID-19, either for diagnosing active disease or for determining if someone has been exposed. That seems like kind of an obvious thing, but it's surprisingly difficult to do in the United States because the labs and healthcare systems don't communicate with each other and it's hard to match up their data systems. So if the accelerator succeeds, it could create data that would be critical for patient care, obviously, You want to know what tests work and which ones don't and what their characteristics are, but also for developing drugs and for vaccines and ultimately for reopening businesses and schools. Thanks, Steve. And obviously, COVID-19 isn't the only thing happening right now in the biopharma industry. Last week, we saw some news that Lauren dug into pertaining to U.S. headquartered genomics company Wuxi Nextcode. They announced that they're restructuring. They're going to integrate their U.S., Ireland, and Icelandic operations under a new entity, and they're going to cut ties from the Chinese operations of Wuxi Nextcode. Lauren, what has triggered this move, and what does the restructuring involve for the company? Yeah, so I think this move comes at a time when there is tightening of the regulations that restrict the flow of genomic data across international borders all around the globe. But specifically, this actually started almost a year ago when in China, the human genetics resource regulations were finalized. And although this didn't actually change the regulations too much, it did make some steeper penalties for companies that don't comply with them. So around last July, when that happened, this split began at Wishy Next Code. And what this involves is, as you said, breaking off the Chinese businesses from the non-Chinese businesses. And for the new company, Genuity Sciences, this essentially cuts off all ties to everything in China. So this split not only complies with those new regulations in China, but it also sets the company up to sort of better navigate any potential regulations around CFIUS that happen in the United States. So at this point, there are no Chinese members on the company's new board, and they're specifically working with clients outside of China. So that's a good point. So you mentioned that the impetus for this might have been regulations in China, but the United States has imposed restrictions on Chinese investment investments in biopharma companies, and especially there's a lot of sensitivity around genomics companies. So it seems like this would be a play for them to be able to continue to operate in the United States, which they might not be able to do if they were perceived as a Chinese entity. Exactly. So this sets up both new companies to operate better in each of their regions, I think. So 
But will they be able to exchange? I know they won't be able to exchange the genomic data, but will they be able to benefit each other in any way? Will it be technology that goes back and forth? Or are they really just going to be completely separate entities that would compete with each other? Even? So when I spoke with the CEO of the new U.S. headquarter company last week, they said that the goal is to completely split into separate entities because one of the requirements in China in order to use genetic data from Chinese patients is that a foreign company has to have a domestic partner. And so it seems as though that's sort of an automatic partner there if they should need to do anything in China, but clearly they're just completely split with clients in the U.S. and other nations going there and clients in China sticking with the, the Wuxi Next code. But interestingly, we don't actually know too much about the structure of the Chinese company at this point. So are these kind of restrictions, are they also going to apply to equipment? You know, things like sequencers and other technology. Are we going to see the kind of development of completely parallel universes for genomics technology in China and the United States? Or is the split just about the data and they'll still be able to collaborate and sell equipment back and forth for things like sequencing and other things? At this point, my understanding is that it's just about the data, but I'm not sure what's going to happen in terms of the equipment. Well, why not split into three, you know, a European, a U.S., and a Chinese entity? Are the regulations pretty similar in the U.S. and Europe? So I think the regulations in Europe are a little bit different, and Steve might know the answer to this better than me, but I'm not sure that it's as much about investing in companies working in genomics and things like that. But I know that in Europe, they have some of the strictest laws protecting patient data. So patients have to give their consent for really every use of their data. And we're starting to see some of those similar protections in certain regions in the U.S., but I'm not sure that the business restrictions are any more well, so, strict. So in Europe, they're moving toward setting up similar restrictions to CFIUS. They haven't moved as quickly and as aggressively as the United States, but I think you can assume that they're moving in that direction. I also think that the data privacy standards in Europe are setting a kind of de facto threshold for the United States also. So it's not going to be a big burden for American companies to comply with European privacy standards because they know that sooner or later that they're going to have to use very similar standards in the United States anyway. That's interesting. So is that sort of a first step towards some sort of harmonization across multiple countries? I think that's probably too reasonable to think that it's really going to happen. <laughs> I mean, when you got the word regulation and reasonable, they don't usually occur in the same sentence. The oxymoronic R's. Excellent. Well, thank you both. This has been a very interesting conversation this week. Lauren, Steve, as always, great to chat with you. But that is all we have time for. I'm Jeff Cranmer signing out. All of BioCentury's coverage is available at biocentury.com. If you're interested in our free coronavirus coverage, it's available at biocentury.com backslash coronavirus. And all of our podcasts are available at our website, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google.